So for the rest of the morning, we will just have Sarah and Ellie up here playing the piano. I'm just going to go sit back down. Ellie. Oh, she left. All right, I forgot. Never mind. Ellie, screaming out there. She did an amazing job. I, I was talking with someone this last week, and they were talking about the idea of taking our gifts and our skills and our abilities and our talents that God has given to us and passing those on to other generations. And I think that somewhere along the way we forgot that, uh, even though it's something that is definitely built into the Bible, that we pass on what we know and what we have to other generations. And there's something powerful that happens when our life rubs up against another life, and then that life then rubs against another life, and things get passed along. And the greatest thing that we have is to pass along the truth of Christ. Uh, but it's fun to sit and watch someone like Sarah uh, teach Ellie, and then I'm certain that probably one day the way it always happens that the student will then pass the master uh, in all things. So it's uh, fun to see that. Uh, it is true this last week I did become another year older. And the older I get and the more that I interact with God and His Word, honestly, the more speechless I become, the more in awe of God's greatness and glory. I become. And I, I really think that's the way it should be. That's the way that we're built uh, to be, to, to give back our worship to God and to realize more and more just, just how big God is and how mighty God is. I believe that we should be falling more and more in love with the lover of our soul. I believe that we should be more and more marveled by the marvelous one. I believe that we should be more captivated by the creator and sustainer of all. But this week as I was working through the material for this morning's sermon and I was reading and rereading the text for this morning, it hit me all over again. And this is so true and I, we need to believe this, that what a mighty God we serve. And it's these words from God's word more than any that have come to my mind lately over and over again. It's the words that he says and for the first time, but he says it all over Scripture. In Exodus 34, verse 6, he says it, Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger, and I am filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. And it's really that last line in particular that captures and captivates me. Filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. In fact, I'm convinced that if we could just grasp the, the magnitude of that one statement, those few words, it would be a game changer in our lives. And not only for our lives, but for our faith as well. And the reason that line and those words are so gripping to me is that I constantly wonder, what in the world would cause God to care so much for a creation that is so neglectful and unfaithful to him? In fact, it's why the psalmist says, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? What are human beings that you should care for them? And I only stand in amazement at God's loyalty to us, not only because I see it in the world that I live in, or I see a selfish bent in the people that occupy the world, but most importantly, I'm amazed that God would love us and care for us and be faithful to us and loyal to us because I know myself all too well. I know the rebellion that lives in me, the stubbornness that is within me, the waywardness that defines my life. It's the same reason that the Apostle Paul in 
1 Corinthians 15, 9 says these words, For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, he says, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God because rebellion, because of stubbornness, characterized my life. He also says and talks about this idea in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. He says, this grace was given to me, again, listen, notice the phrase that he uses there, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light about God's grace. It's amazing to me that a, a guy like Paul, who experienced so much, who was so wise, who was so learned, who was so smart, would have those words to say to himself, I am the least of all the apostles. I am the least of all the saints. I really don't measure up to what God has given to me, yet he in his grace and his mercy has given it to not only people like Paul, but to all of us. See, Paul understood the crookedness that defined him as a person, but more powerful to him was the understanding of God's grace to be greater than the sin that existed in him. We also understand the very same things, that God's grace is greater than our sin. And if there was ever a time in history, if there were ever a people who should have understood the greatness of God, his might, his power, and his grace, it was Israel during the time of the prophets. And specifically, Israel during the time, as we've been talking about for the last few weeks, during the time of Amos. Notice we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the people who should have been the most gracious, the people who should have been the most grateful and the most faithful were anything but that. Instead, they had sunk to such depths that God had thrown in the towel on them as a nation. It's really what the book of Amos is all about, is God saying to the people of Israel, as a nation, as a collective whole, I am walking away. Judgment and punishment awaited them. And, and the key verse for that punishment comes in chapter 8, just before what we'll read this morning. And it's a very interesting warning. It's a very interesting promise that Amos gives to the nation of Israel. He says in Amos eight eleven, the time is surely coming, says the sovereign Lord. That's very Important, that's very intentional that that word is used there. The sovereign, all-powerful, mighty God says this. When I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or a famine of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. I mean, we could think of a million ways to experience punishment, starvation from food, Loss of home and land, being stripped of the things that are most precious to us, being tortured and beaten. Those are all forms of punishment that we can imagine, but it's none of these things that God chooses to highlight in his message through Amos. Instead, it's a starva starvation, it's a shortage, it's an impoverishment that comes from a loss of God's word. And while we may sit here this morning and think to ourselves, well, that's really not that big of a deal, Right? It was a big deal to the people who only had God's word. That was the start of their existence as a nation. If we're honest with ourselves, God's word is the start of our existence as people, as creatures, as human beings. Everything rests on God's word. 
So to lose the words of God meant losing everything as the Israelites. Losing God's word means everything to us as human beings. I mean, if you just think about it for a moment and think about the major moments in Israel's history, some of the biggest and some of the most depressing and the darkest times in Israel's history are always tied to a lack of God's presence or a hearing from God. It all starts in Egypt. How long did Israel find themselves in Egypt? 400 years, give or take, maybe a little bit more. And in that moment when they are in Egypt, they are literally, they feel like we are without God. We are lacking God in our lives. And until they cry out to God and God hears them in their cry, that he powerfully leads them out of Egypt and into their own land. And they're in their own land, but they are also exiled. They're exiled for 70 years. God again steps away. He silences himself. He takes away his presence. They spend exile away from their homes, away from the customs and everything that they know. And again, as the Old Testament comes to a close and God speaks his final words through the prophets before a new age dawns, before he speaks his next words, do you know how long of a gap exists between his last words he speaks and when he picks things up and what we know is our New Testament? About 400 years, give or take. And God is silent. He's silent. Guys, you can imagine how excruciating it would be not to hear from someone that you are expecting to respond for 70 years or for 400 years. It's worse yet when it's the God that you are putting all of your faith and all of your trust and all of your eternity in. So yeah, the, the promise and the predicted punishment of Amos 8.11, that he will withdraw his words from his people, is a pretty big deal. In fact, it's crushing. It's a crushing blow to these people. Just to emphasize the certainty of the judgment God is about to hand out, he gives Amos this vision actually at the beginning of chapter 8. The first three verses say this. Then the sovereign Lord showed me another vision, and in that vision I saw a basket filled with ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? he asked. And I replied, a basket full of ripe fruit. And we would look at that and we would say to ourselves, why in the world is this guy talking about fruit and baskets of fruit? I don't get it. Verse 3 explains it all. The Lord says this, like this fruit, Israel is ripe for punishment. I will not delay their punishment again. In that day, the singing in the temple will turn to wailing. Dead bodies will be scattered everywhere. They will be carried out of the city in silence. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. And we say to ourselves, whew, that's, that's cheery. I mean, that really gives us some nice warm fuzzies inside, right? To hear about dead bodies being carried out of the city and people being silenced. And we combine that with the promise that God is about to, to go silent and you have the terrifying situation that exists in Israel. And as John Calvin captures the devastation in this moment, he very simply says about God withdrawing not only himself, but God withdrawing his word. He says, when we abuse God's goodness... Our ingratitude deserves this very response that God gives in the book of Amos. A complete withdrawal and silence. This response is a removal of God's word and it's a resignation to our own fortunes and our own destinies. In fact, it's what the New Testament tells us in the book of James. We reap what we sow. We get it all back and then some. 
And we would look at this, and we've been talking for a few weeks, and it's really hard sometimes to read, and especially read the book of Amos, and to see any sort of hope at all. In fact, like I said, for eight chapters in the book of Amos, there isn't a whole lot of hope. God unloads both barrels on the people of Israel. And honestly, just before what we're about to read in just a moment is our main text for this morning, Israel gets this ominous and gets this very defeating blow in Amos chapter 9. Starting at verse 8, he says, I, the sovereign Lord, am watching this sinful nation of Israel. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. I will give the command and I will shake Israel along with the other nations as grain is shaken in a sieve. All the sinners will die by the sword. All those who say nothing bad will happen to us. And we read that and we're like, Ryan, why do we even need to study this stuff? Why in the world do we even read those words? Because there is no hope found here. This nation is doomed. And if the story was to end at that point in chapter 9, there would be no hope. How utterly hopeless would that be? But Amos doesn't end the story there. God does not end the story there. God's story never stops short of hope. To be honest, I left a few lines out of the message that God gives to his people there in chapter 9. So I want to reread it with the lines reinserted back in that give us the hope and lead us into what we're going to talk about this morning. I, the sovereign Lord, am watching this sinful nation of Israel. I will destroy it from the face of the earth, but I will never completely destroy the family of Israel, says the Lord. For I will give the command and I will shake Israel along with the other nations as grain is shaken in a sieve, but, and yet, not one true kernel will be lost. God's story never stops short of hope. Do you hear the difference between the first time I read that and the last time that I read that? The lines that were inserted back in there, it's the difference. It's all the difference that hope makes in a story. And it continues to the end of Amos' message, and I want to pick up this morning with our main text in Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. He says, In that day I will restore the fallen house of David. I will repair its damaged walls, and from the ruins I will rebuild it and restore its former glory. And Israel will possess what is left of Edom and all the nations I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken, and he will do these things. The time will come, says the Lord, when the grain and the grapes will grow faster than they can be harvested. Then the terraced vineyards on the hills of Israel will drip with my sweet wine. I will bring my exiled people of Israel back from distant lands, and they will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them again. They will plant vineyards and gardens, and they will eat their crops and drink their wine. I will firmly plant them there in their own land. They will never again be uprooted from the land that I have given them, says the Lord, your God. And here is what I notice as I read through Amos, as we've studied it for the last few weeks. Judgment is certain for the people of Israel. There is no escaping this. There is no denying this. But judgment is not the final word. And this is why the message of an Old Testament prophet to an ancient civilization thousands of years ago means everything to us in this room today. And this is why it matters. And, And 
Everything for the whole series has been centered around this, and this morning is centered around this. Hope is never lost because we have a God of promise. And although God looks at Israel and says, I am throwing in the towel, I am done with you, I am walking away, he only does that to the nation as a whole. God says so many times in Scripture, he says in the Old Testament, he says it in one of the most important places in the New Testament, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I will never abandon you. Hope is never lost because we have a God who made that promise long ago. And he's keeping it still today. And this is why I am continually amazed at God. In moments and in times when God has no business to have any business with us, when we would be best left to our own devices, when we have sunk to the lowest depths, God is still there. Because God is a God of promise. God cannot break his promises. And again, we talked about it. It goes something like this all over Scripture. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. It's God's greatest promise in Scripture. It's the promise that sustains Israel in their darkest hour. It's a promise that lifts us in, the, in our moments of wandering and weakness when God says, I am with you. No matter what, in spite of whatever what is. I don't know what what is in your life. What has caused you in your life to sink to the, the lowest depths and to think to yourself, God would not want anything to do with me. God has only judgment and punishment for me. Whatever that what is for you, God is still there in that what. In fact, as one writer puts it, he says, precisely because God is sovereign, powerful, mighty over all things, he will not sometimes, just every once in a while, he will always be able to fulfill the promises that he has made. But he is certainly not obligated to keep those promises according to how we think they ought to be kept. And therein lies kind of the rub in life sometimes. We look at Scripture and we go all the way through this and we read so many times and you've got a guy up here today who's telling you God has a God of promise. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. And you look at your life and you're like, none of my life lives up to that. None of my life feels like that. It doesn't feel like God is a God of promise. The rub lies in the fact that we often expect God to do things in the way that we want God to do them. We want God to do things in the time that we want God to do them, and that doesn't always add up. God's plan is God's plan, not ours, and he works in that. Our faith in God does not come from what he will do and when he will do it or how he will make it all work and who will be involved in that plan. How many of us in this room are like planners? I'm like, every detail of everything has to be planned, right? Like A to Z, all right? Raising hands for people is also appropriate at this point. So it's very irritating to us sometimes when God doesn't work A to Z. And doesn't have, we, 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 don't, we don't get that. We don't get inside access to that every single time to know how it's going to happen, when it's going to happen, who's going to be involved in what happens. Guys, our faith in God rests solely on the fact of what God has already done. Plain and simple. 
We live our lives in light of that. What has God done, not only in our lives, but what has he done in all of creation since the beginning of time? And that's what our faith rests in. His work in the past in multiple ways inspires and informs our faith, not only in the present, but it informs it and inspires it for the future. And if there is one thing that is true of Israel, it's this. They had experienced their fair share of God's faithfulness, of God's loyalty, of God's goodness and his promises and his graciousness. What do you think so many times in the Old Testament, what do they constantly point back to? The Passover and the Exodus, right? That's what everything stems from for Israel. Because there was no other moment in their history where God had been so powerful and so mighty and so good and gracious to them that they constantly look back to that. And guys, if we're really honest this morning, we can say the very same things. Now, we may not have had a Passover in our life. We may not have had an exodus and walked through the Red Sea, but we've had so many points in our life where God has been so good to us, so gracious to us, that he has showed up in powerful and mighty ways and really led us out from the darkness that we find ourselves in. And if we had just a few moments to pause and to reflect, we could share story after story, tiny moment after tiny moment that God's grace has left us utterly stunned and amazed and speechless. Listen to the constant refrain of Scripture as it sings about God's marvelous and wonderful grace. Galatians 1.15, Paul says this, But even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his what? marvelous grace. And he continued on. Then it pleased him. Continue on. Oh no, I guess it doesn't continue on. We don't get the rest of that. But I am going to read it. I want to read it. Galatians 1.15, the rest of it says, God chose me and called me according to his marvelous grace. Then it pleased him to reveal a son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. And I think that's such an important point. God's grace that is lavish and is poured and is put on us is not simply for our own sake and our own benefit, but it's always for the benefit of others around us. We should be living our lives to share God's grace and his mercy. Psalm 84, 11. For the Lord God is our son and he is our shield. He gives us grace and glory. The Lord will withhold no good thing from those who do what is right. Acts 15, 11, we believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. And then finally in Romans 5, 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass, to point out our flaws, to point out our inconsistencies. And I love this line so much. That's what Satan's intent was, to use the law and twist the law. But where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more. God had a greater plan than Satan can ever imagine up. And in his grace, he triumphed. If there's ever a moment in scripture where God's grace seems most amazing, Amos and the climate that Amos lived in, it seems like a really good candidate for the most unlikely place to find God's grace. Although God had offered up opportunity after opportunity for the people to turn away from their ways, and to return to the Lord, they flat out refused. Not only did they flat out refuse, they reveled in the fact of how good things were for them. 
That's how it is when Amos comes to the people of Israel. I mean, surely God would be done with them now, right? Surely God would just... I'm going to find me another nation. I'm going to go find me another people to be good to. But this is exactly the moment in Scripture where His grace becomes the strongest and it becomes the most compelling. It's the exact moment when God ups the ante and He extends His grace in even greater ways. And the sole purpose of God's grace and the response that He desires is to bring people back to Himself. The short message at the end of the book of Amos informs those who continue to rebel and to fail to return to the Lord that they are missing out on the greatest gift that can be offered. Guys, grace is free, but grace still needs to be received as we return to the Lord. And when we turn back to God, He is faithful to give us what He has offered and He has promised from the beginning of time. And here's what's very true, not just about grace, but about any gift. A gift is really not a gift until it is actually received. I mean, you could take and you could... I I wouldn't do this because I am a horrible gift wrapper, by the way. So don't expect a greatly wrapped gift from me. But suppose I were to bring in the greatest gift wrapper the world has ever seen. And they just had it all nice and wonderful looking. And then it just sat there. And it never went to anybody. It was never opened by anybody. The essence of the gift is really lost. It really is no gift at all. I want you to imagine for a moment that you had access to all the best things that could be, ever be offered to you. I don't care if it's money. I don't care if it's any possession, if it's some sort of food, whatever it may be. You were given access to the best things that the world could offer if you would only choose to live a different way. And this is what was done for the people of Israel. God says, I have the best gift and it is available to you it's right at your fingertips if you would only return to me and yet they did and and we also do we willfully choose to continue in the same old same old the same old past the same old way our same old sins that we just constantly get trapped by and that's what happens with god's offer of grace people squander it endlessly They did it in Amos' day, and they continue to do it in our own day. And guys, here's what I think so often. I I think that the reason that people are not attracted to the grace of God, I think the reason that people continually squander the grace of God, people continually walk away from the grace of God, is the very people who are supposed to be the grace bearers, the grace dispensers, the very truth of grace, are not giving a very compelling vision of grace. In our lives. And so people walk away from it. They reject it. Amos does not make the same mistake when he shares the vision of God. And and, and what we do ultimately with God's grace is, is up to us. Do we reject it? Do we walk away from it? Do we take it, but we hold on to it for ourselves and never share it? Or do we do exactly what grace is meant to be? shared with others, inspiring their life, informing their life, changing their life, causing them to return to the Lord and to turn back to the Lord. The question is, will you receive that gift of grace daily or will you leave it sitting there unopening? My, My plea for all of us is that we do not waste the gift of grace that has been given to us, but we enjoy it 
and we offer it also to others. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as he ends chapter 5 and in the beginning of chapter 6, he says the old life is gone, a new life has become, begun. And all of this is a gift. A gift of grace from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us, every one of us in this room this morning, the task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. And so we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. As God's partners, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of, uh, uh, not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. For God says, at just the right time, I heard you on the day of salvation. I helped you indeed. And I love how this ends. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. And, and imagine if we lived our lives that way, if we carried that truth within us and we lived it, and everywhere that we went, we would look at somebody and we'd say, today could be the day of salvation for that person, or that person, or that group of people. The time is right now, today. Here's what's particularly interesting as we Look at the person of Amos. I haven't really shared this yet. I love name meetings. I love to, I mean, like you can know a person's name. Be like, that's kind of a nice name. But when you dig behind it and you know what the name means, it opens up a whole new level of things. On the surface, there's really nothing flashy about Amos. I mean, I really, I, I, if I had many more kids, I wouldn't name any of them Amos. Just to me, not a really appealing name. And he's a simple farmer. He senses a call from God to go preach a tough message to a kingdom that was living in comfort and luxury and the best that life had to offer. And while that may not be particularly interesting to any of us in here, what is interesting is the meaning of Amos' name. And Amos literally means this, burden or burden bearer. I mean, isn't that really fascinating, knowing everything that some of us have heard for the last few weeks about this man Amos. It's fascinating to me because it describes to a T exactly what defined Amos's ministry. It defined to a T exactly who Amos was. Amos had a white hot burning passion and an undeniable burden to warn Israel of its poor choices and his dangerous path. But he also had the larger burden to share with anyone who would listen that God was not done with them yet. And he never would be for those who remain faithful to, them, to him. And, and here's what I really believe as we come to the end of the book of Amos. And some of you are saying, I don't know, Ryan. I still just don't see anything in this Old Testament book. What in the world can we gain from it? I think we gain hope at the very end of it, but I think we gain a lot from looking at the person of Amos. And I think that every single one of us, I believe that every single one of us should be an Amos in our own day. We should all leave here this morning and not say, man, you know what? I was just inspired by another really great worship service. It was good to be there in the house of the Lord. We should leave here and we say, you know what? I want to be a little Amos today. And that might be really tough. It might be super, super tough to go out there and to look at people that you really love and that you really, really care for and say, you're going the wrong way. 
you're walking down a very dangerous path. But to also say at the very same time, guess what? God is not done with you yet because God is a God of promise. And God's story never stops short of hope because he is a God of promise. I mean, we may not go next door. We may not lay into our neighbors about judgment that's in store for them. But guys, we carry a burden. Every single one of us who have put our faith in Christ, we carry a burden to share the gospel, to carry the good news of the gospel wherever we would go. And we talked a couple weeks ago about justice, and we talked about poverty, we talked about trafficking, we talked about all these things that are injustices in our day. And here is my honest-to-goodness belief. The greatest injustice that we could commit is not any of those things. The greatest injustice that we could commit in our own lives is to not share the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel. That is an injustice. To know people who are separated from God and to not just ache for them and not just want them to, they just, they need to know God. That is to me the greatest injustice. And so the question we need to ask as we come to the end of our study on Amos is how in the world do we make sure that we don't fall into the same trap that the people of Israel did in Amos' day? And I think the answer lies in the promise that God makes at the very end of the book of Amos. And I want to read the last verse again. In verse 15, he says, I will firmly plant them there in their land, in their own land. They will never again be uprooted from the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. And here's what I see after four weeks, four weeks of studying Amos, and here's where it all comes to the end. The way that we make sure that we don't fall into the trap that the people of Israel did in Amos' day is that we stay deeply rooted. It's as simple, but it's as hard as that. I was reading this week, uh, and this really kind of shows my geekiness, but I was reading about tree roots. <laughs> I don't know, that may be really, really cool reading for you, but uh, it doesn't sound very fascinating to most people. And as I was reading this little article on tree roots, and I kept questioning myself, why am I reading an article on tree roots? There was this line that came out of it that I thought just spoke everything about this idea of being deeply rooted in God. Good roots are determined by some very specific conditions. It says, roots require three things, water, oxygen, and soil compaction levels low enough or with void spaces sufficiently large enough to allow root penetration. And if all these, root, these conditions are met, roots can grow to great depths. Under ideal soil and moisture conditions, roots have been observed to grow more than 20 feet deep. That's pretty deep, guys. In fact, it goes on in the article to say in the early 1990s, one study even found that tree roots grew to a depth of 33 feet and in one system grew to a depth of 174 feet. How? How in the world does something like that happen? And it's very simply this, the right conditions. Again, as the article puts it, Trees are genetically capable of growing deep roots, but root architecture is strongly influenced by soil and climate conditions. And it's that one line that, that 
gives me kind of this hope, and, I, and it, it's my hope that I give to you today. Every single one of us in this room this morning, guys, is capable of deep roots. Every one of us in this room this morning is capable of being firmly planted in God's truth and His grace. It's just really dependent on whether or not we surround ourselves and put ourselves in the right conditions. And I could sit up here and I could probably preach a whole other sermon about what right conditions mean. But it simply means that we are, we are dwelling with and we are dwelling in the Lord. Every bit of our life is marked by that. There's not an area of our life that's not touched by God and influenced by God. And one of the most important of those conditions is faithfulness in turning and returning to the Lord. This entire series has circled back to this point, and it's why back to the start, the title of this series, we started with that and talked about that. I think it fits perfectly into the theme of repentance and returning to the Lord, because repentance, returning to the Lord, being faithful to the Lord, is all about going back to the start. I mean, you could do so much to your life to wreck your life, to totally waste your life away, and in one moment where you make the decision, I I'm done, and I'm coming back to God, is the moment that you come back to the start, and God gives his grace in good faith. And as so much of the Bible is, Amos really is a plea for God's people to return to him and his ways and to experience restoration. That's what this whole last section of Amos 9 is to establish deep roots, and to thrive in places that God has planted us. We are all capable of so much more in our faith. If we would only put down deep roots, if we would only grow in the promises that God has given us, then the greatest promise is that we serve a mighty and a powerful God. I've referenced this book once at the very beginning of the sermon series, but J.D. Greer has this book, Not God Enough, that I actually just had a chance to finish the other day. Again, if you have not purchased this book, please get this book and read it. In his book, Not God Enough, J.D. Greer tells this story, and I don't know if you've heard it this way or if you've heard a different version of the story. He tells the often told story of the woodpecker who was tapping away on a telephone pole when a lightning strike hit the pole and split it in two. Dazed and a bit confused, the woodpecker was kind of hovering there for a little bit, and then he, he was just staring at the pole, and then he flew away and got all of his buddies, and he brought them back, and he said, yep, boys, there she is. Look what I did. <laughs> and guys, when we stay rooted in the promises of God, and we constantly return to those promises God has given to us, we can expect the power of God to be present in our life and through our lives. And I want to read, if you will entertain me for just a moment, and read a, a couple of the last paragraphs that he has in his book talking all about the promises of God and the power that's in the promises of God. He says this. Bold faith in a big God comes not from having all your questions answered. It comes from recognizing that a voice has spoken. That voice emanates from a being whose sheer power and whose size boggles the mind. Bold faith believes in a love as wide as the universe and a love demonstrated through Jesus' voluntary death for a rebellious race. Bold faith then watches in amazement as an all-wise and all-powerful and ever-faithful God does what he said that he would do. 
I don't understand all the mysteries behind the glorious, wonderful, and sometimes bewildering ways of God, but I do know what he wants from me. He wants me to stand humbly before him in awestruck worship. That's what he wants for all of us. That's what he wants for all of his creation. He wants me to stand in front of mighty enemies on the wrong side of incredible odds before impossible problems and believe that he will accomplish everything that he said he would. He wants me to have the faith that moves mountains and splits oceans to faithfully tap away at the telephone pole and wait for the lightning strike of his power. And when that happens, I will back away probably a little days and say, I knew it. I knew it. I knew he would do it. He, would, uh, he said that he would. What an awesome God that we serve.